Welcome to Saga Thing, a podcast that puts the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. In each episode, we read a saga, discuss the story, and judge the actions of the characters at the Saga Thing. Now, after yet another brief but wholly unintentional hiatus, I think we're finally ready to tackle another saga. Absolutely. Um, I think we've chosen a real winner this time. Well, that's debatable. Well, I mean, everything's debatable when it comes to tastes. Now, I happen to enjoy this saga, so I'm going to agree with you here. This one's a real winner. Then why are you complaining about my phrasing? I'm just I'm just trying to be sensitive about the myriad perspectives that are out there, John. Oh, jeez. All right, we've only yeah. just started this thing and already you're exhausting me. Yeah. Yeah, welcome back, right? That <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're exhausted already, I don't know how we're going to get through this one. Because it seems like we've got an awful lot to say here. So drink deep of that high alcohol content beer you've got there, John, and let's get to it. Okay. Uh, hit the button so the people know what we're doing this time around. This time on Saga Thing, one of Iceland's most celebrated skaldic poets, Cormac Ogmunderson, vies for the love of Steingard, whose lovely feet capture young Cormac's heart and mind. If these two lovers are going to have any chance, they'll have to overcome the meddlesome fool Narfi and his plot to thwart their love. And who could forget Thorbe, the walrus witch who sinks her tusks into the heart of the love affair. Along the way, you'll meet the aged but awesome Bersi the Dueler and Thorvald Tintime, who rival Cormac for the love of Steingart. This saga has erotic poetry. Dueling, romance, dueling, sorcery, dueling, and Scottish giants, but mostly dueling. Will Norfe and Thorveig stop Cormac's quest for Steingard's hand, or will the reasonably handsome poet get his way in the end? Find out as Saga Thing takes on Cormac's Saga. Oh, great. Another warrior poet. That didn't sound sincere at all. I'm sure that our listeners aren't sick of that theme right now. <laughs> but this one is Cormac Saga. It's going to be great. Oh, really? I'm not used to you being the optimistic one. What can I say? I'm excited about what this one offers us. Uh, for one thing, it's by far the most widely read of the warrior poet sagas, which means we actually have more of a chance to look at some of the context for this group of sagas than we had with someone like Gunlog Serpentongue or Hall for Troublesome Poet. Yeah, that's true. But Cormac's popularity with readers doesn't mean that scholars are always kind to it. I mean, Diana Whaley points out in an introduction to the saga that, quote, some critics see it as something of a structural disaster. And she's mainly talking about people. (laughs) She's talking about people who think that Cormac exists mostly as a frame narrative for the poetry, which there's a whole lot of in this saga. I mean, to varying degrees, that seems to be the near universal opinion. Um, even, even Heather O'Donoghue, who generally seems to approve of Cormac, calls it a, quote, patchwork of different <laughs> kinds of literary materials. A patchwork? How is that approving? <laughs> well, she says it was a deliberate structural choice by the author. Ah, well, that's certainly a kinder evaluation than some have given it. Uh, to me, it actually seems a little harsh. I mean, there, there are definitely some problems with the pacing of the saga, but I think it's got some charm as a story. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it's true that the poetic verses are the backbone of the story. Cormac comes across as a guy who's never caught without a poem when the occasion warrants. Yeah, often more than one poem. I mean, there are 85 total verses of poetry in this saga, <laughs> and nearly three-quarters of them are spoken by Cormac. I mean, there's barely any prose, oh, right? Oh, oh. 
Right, so those of you who just can't get enough of obfuscatory scaldic verse-making action are in for a real treat this Who time. says obfuc- obfuscatory? <laughs> obfuscatory. <laughs> All right, look. Cormac may be somewhat more prolific than the other warrior poets, but overall, mm-hmm. this saga is pretty typical of the genre. Uh, in fact, it might be worth a minute or two to talk a minute or two like we've <laughs> ever done anything in a minute or two to talk about these sagas as a group. Uh, or at least the reading tradition that's tended to group them together. All right. Um, well, I mean, to some degree, the response to Cormac is typical of the genre. Uh, a lot of the scholarly response boils down to one camp who focuses on the high quality and historical value of the poetry, and another camp that focuses on the pastiche and uneven nature of the narratives that surround them. Nicely done, John. Thank you. That's a very typically <laughs> academic move. You're laying out the positions of other people... From a very safe and neutral position. That didn't sound like a compliment at all. Don't give away all our trade secrets. Okay, let's get down to it. What do you think uh, of this thing? All right. Well, there are no de- there's no denying that the scaldic tale sometimes seems to wag the saga dog in these texts. Whatever that means. You've never heard the tail wagging the dog? Oh, I know what that means. I just think it sounds funny. But we, <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you. Uh, but we can't lose sight of the structural similarities among the warrior poet sagas. These are stories that are pretty clearly built around a recognized story structure. So the writers aren't just veering from one verse to the next. There's a kind of skeletal form to these stories that helps to shape the narratives. Yeah, there's certainly a class of reader who sees a clear structural pattern in the warrior-poet group. Well, I don't think there could be any denying that that structure exists. Sure, but some people, they push the idea really far. I mean, for example, uh, Diana Whaley again. She offers a nine-part framework to their plots, mm. and she gets pretty specific about it. Uh, just take one example. In each narrative... The poet loiters around a local farm after falling in love with a woman there, which causes her father to press for a firm marriage commitment, and then a rival for the woman's affection is introduced shortly thereafter, and before the poet's intentions are fully made clear. And that's one of the sections? That's just one of them. There's a lot of them. Jeez. See, and they actually do match up. Yeah, no, and it's easy to miss that degree of similarity because the details are different each time, and it's those details that give each saga its own flavor. Sure, but the patterns are fairly clear-cut and suggest real attention to the shape and sequence of the action. Well, okay, to play devil's advocate for the poetry first group for a minute, we okay. we have to admit, the skaldic verses in these sagas are almost the backbone of the narrative. I mean, sure. Cormac alone produces 64 verses in his own saga, and another 20 verses are attributed to other sources, mostly to his rival Bercy. Without those verses, Cormac's saga would be substantially diminished as a text, just lengthwise, and most of its best writing would be gone. And yet you keep making me read all these verses for the podcasts. Well, I just can't get enough of your dulcet tones. That's understandable. Mm. Uh, anyway, we're looking at devoting an upcoming saga brief to the verses because they are so vital to reading and fully appreciating the sagas as right. a collection. Uh, and it makes sense to pair that with the warrior poet sagas that we're currently working on. As the name suggests, sure. these are men famed for their poetry. Yeah, expect that saga brief uh, very shortly, wink, wink. <laughs> uh, now, all verse makers are not created equal. In Cormac's saga, for example, we get some rather incompetent verse making from other figures that serve to set off how well constructed the verses for Cormac and his rival Bersiar, which is kind of a clever move by the uh, by the author. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, it's true. Poets, uh, sort of, you know, semi-professional or professional poets, enjoyed a certain celebrity in Icelandic culture. So it just makes sense that they'd be disproportionately celebrated in the sagas. Yeah, but I think it goes beyond that. Poetry and even poets were something of an export commodity for medieval Iceland. I like to talk to my students about this all mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. Now, Snorri Sturluson, for example, that uh, the most infamous, infamous writer. Snorri Sturluson. 
Oh, yes, of course. Infamous Sonori Sturlis. And do we do that every time? Is that our little thing? <laughs> you haven't caught on to this yet? No. <laughs> but there there were a lot of poets and writers from Iceland who made a name for themselves in the courts of Northern Kingdoms, so like we've seen in all these other poet sagas. Right. And actually, we know a great deal about this due to the survival of a document called the Skaldatal, the Listing of Poets, which is appended to one of the copies of the Prose Edda. Oh, that's right. Uh, it's not much more than a list of well-known poets and their patrons with some notes on their work, but it's vital to understanding the fame that Icelandic poets enjoyed. In in some cases, the work hasn't survived, and so it's thanks to the Skaldatal that we even know of them. Right, right. But in other cases, saga writers were inspired to build sagas around the poets and their surviving work, or at least poems that were generally thought to have been composed by the poets. Mm-hmm. Right, and in some cases, that can cause bizarre effects within the story. Um uh, I don't know if you remember the brief battle in Halford's saga when Mar attacks Halford with a sacrificial trough. Only in the most vague possible <laughs> sense. <laughs> Why don't you refresh my memory a little um, bit? Well, uh, essentially that's it. Uh, Mar attacks Halford with a sacrificial trough. Oh, no yeah, amount of context nice. makes it make any more sense than that. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty weird. Yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> and it's know. almost certainly only in the saga because the author needed to explain a reference to a sacrificial trough in a verse attributed to Halford. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as you were just implying, there's also the problem of knowing whether these verses are even connected to their supposed authors. Yeah. I mean, there's a fair amount of skepticism among modern readers of the sagas about that. And even the original writers and audience may have understood the verses to be subject to the same give and take of historicized writing that the sagas themselves undergo. Now, on the other hand, some recent study of the metrics of the verses suggests that many of them, especially those attributed to Cormac, Halfred, and Ail Scott Grimson, are likely to have originated in the 10th and 11th centuries. So, exactly when the poets themselves lived. Exactly. But, as has been pointed out, that's not the same as saying the poets themselves composed the verses in the heat of the moment like they do so often in the sagas. Well, I mean, we have to allow a little creative license to the saga writers. Sure, but we're... You know what? This is turning into a, a saga brief of its own, so <laughs> why don't we talk about Cormac's saga and not get too far off topic? What do you think? Was, wasn't this your idea? That's not really important here. Let's uh, get to it. I, I'm going to go back and listen to that part again. I'm pretty sure this was your idea. Uh, <laughs> one last thing before we get underway. Uh, for those okay. of you looking for a medium-sized weekend read, Cormac Saga weighs in at 12,956 words or 1.42 Hrofenkels Sagas. I can't believe we're still measuring in Hrofenkels. <laughs> All right. But it is worth noting that Cormac is substantially longer than the last few sagas we've read. And this is one of the many sagas that begins back in Norway. Right, John? Uh, yeah. And just to confuse things, it starts off with the story of Cormac's grandfather, Cormac. Oh. The elder easy. Cormac is a successful earl who supports Harold Fairhair in his struggles to consolidate control of Norway. Wait a, Wait a minute. This is something new. Mm-hmm. Up until now, we've mostly read sagas of men who stood against Harold. Or at least those who found an excuse to escape his rule as soon as possible. Uh, yeah, mostly. It's important to note that not everyone who ended up in Iceland or as part of the 9th century diaspora was against Harold's kingship. Mm. Some of them were alienated by Harold's son, Eric Bloodaxe, and Eric's wife, Gunhild. It's a right, nice who, family. Uh, who we've actually seen a few times in our readings already. Um, among other things, listeners might remember her as the mother of kings who sides with the psychotic Viking Saki in uh, Alfred's saga. I already don't remember that either. Good lord, man. There's a lot going on. Anyway, but others uh, in the sagas, they're motivated by new lands, they're exiled from their communities, or they're just adventurous spirits. Uh, so in this case, the elder Cormac's son, Ogmund, becomes a Viking raider of some fame. 
But he mm-hmm. runs afoul of a rival named Osmond Ashsides. Ah, and the nicknames. two of them fight a naval battle and a duel, both of which Ogman wins. Good for him. Hmm. And Ogman even manages to find time to marry an earl's daughter named Helga. Right between the two fights. Well, he's not one to waste time. No. Uh, as it happened, he he chops off Osman's leg in the duel. Hey, and in doing so, eliminates his rival. Yeah, I like the pace of this one so far. Mm-hmm. We're just getting started, mm-hmm. just a few pages in, and we've already got a feud. We've got nicknames. We've got best bloodshed candidates. But mm-hmm. we're not all the way done with uh, Asman's family yet, are we? Uh, no, no, not not really. But they drop out of the narrative for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I actually like about Cormac Saga is this careful balancing of story elements. Mm-hmm. And this short introduction seeds in a lot of things that are going to be important later. Yeah, not least of which is the partial inversion of the usual warrior poet story. Mm-hmm. Ogman has a rival who tries to break up his marriage, but he defeats his enemy convincingly and gets the girl. These are two things that his son Cormac is going to have a lot of trouble with. Yeah, that's a nice point. Um, but of course, there's no happy ever after story for Ogman since Helga and her infant son Frodi die shortly after the marriage. Poor fellas. Yeah, I know. The the now widower Ogmund, who rather predictably doesn't like Eric Bloodaxe and Gunild, sets sail for Iceland. Now, there's a brief version of a settlement narrative here, where Ogmund throws his seat pillars overboard to find a place to land. But the important point for us is that Ogmund remarries in Iceland. Yeah, and this is a more successful marriage. Ogmund marries Dala, the daughter of a prominent man named Onansioni. Oh my goodness. Yes. We've already uh, got so many names happening. I How know. long can we expect our readers to keep up with this thing? <laughs> well, Onsioni we've come across before. Okay, uh, I'm sure they now, remember. Ogmund and Dala have two sons together. Thorgils, who is a gentle and responsible man, and Cormac. This is our Cormac, who has mm-hmm. dark curly hair and is much more headstrong than his brother. Mm. The boys grow up in relatively peaceful circumstances, and Ogmund dies after his sons reach adulthood. Uh, Thorgils takes charge of the farm under the governance of Skeggy of Midfjord, but Cormac is a more restless soul. So many names. I know. Oh, well. It's par for this kind of action is, or uh, this kind of development. There we go. This kind of development is par for the course with warrior poets, really. We -hmm. typically get a contrasting figure, often a sibling, to emphasize the hot-blooded character of the protagonist. So Cormac has his sturdy farmer brother, Thorgils, just as Gunlaug Serpentung had his more politically astute and handsomer brother, Hermund, and Halford in our last episode had his quiet and ill-fated brother, Galti. That's true. And like the other warrior poets, Cormac doesn't much like hard work. Mm-hmm. So when a whale washes up on shore and needs to be butchered, Cormac sneaks off to go looking for lost sheep with the farm's overseer, Tosti. And honestly, I don't blame him. Flensing a whale sounds like nasty work. Flensing? Really? Yeah, Flensing? What? what? It's the process <laughs> of peeling blubber off a whale. Oh, sure. Everyone knows that. Tell me, have you been rereading Moby Dick in your spare time? No, no. It's, it's, it's one of those words I don't get to use in conversation often enough. I have to take my opportunities when they arrive. I see. No, Flensing. incidentally, my, uh, my parents were at the beach recently in Florida and, uh, Flensing? I, they weren't, they, I asked them about flensing because a, a, <laughs> Way, uh, a whale beached itself near them. Really? And and I immediately asked, you know, who claimed the whale? Uh, right. Who's going to get the meat and the blubber and all that stuff? And she didn't get my joke. Well, fair enough. It was it was a funny. traumatic event for her for some reason. Anyways, let's get on to Steingard. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> it's time to introduce the love interest. Okay. Uh, so Cormac and Tosti spend the night at the farm of a neighbor, Thorkel of Tung. 
And while they're relaxing in the evening, they see a pair of feet under a door. Ooh. Mm. Now, these feet belong to Steingerd Thorkel's daughter. Uh, she's been sneaking a peek at the visiting warriors. And when Cormac sees her shapely feet, mm. he speaks the first of his many verses in the saga. Mighty love has filled my mind, my trollwoman's fair breeze. A necklace sleigh has just presented her instep to me. The feet of that headdress goddess will bring me grief more often than now. Yet of this maid, I otherwise know nothing. Now, there are a few obscure references in that verse. There's Troll Woman's Fair Breeze. That's a kenning for mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, But on the whole, Cormac's verses are notable for their relatively straightforward nature, especially in comparison with some of the things we saw in uh, the previous episodes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And there's actually, there's even precedent in Norse myth for an observer falling in love with a hidden person based on a glimpse only of their feet. Uh, hmm. Skali the giantess in uh, Norse mythology is allowed to choose a husband from among the gods, but she's mm. only allowed to see their feet. Yeah, that Skadi was a real looker. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, she chooses the cleanest and whitest feet among the bunch, assuming that they'll belong to the shining god Baldur. But they turn out to belong to the sea god Njorth, and they're, I guess they're clean and white from being perpetually washed by seawater. You know, I've actually often wondered about this story. The implication of the text is that the Norse gods are, on the whole, a dirty-footed and yellow-nailed bunch, foot-wise. <laughs> Yeah, you'd think she would have recognized the stinky smell of the ocean uh, <laughs> on his feet, but whatever. Anyway, in this case, Stengard hears Cormac making verses about her, and she enters the hall. She then tells her female companion that she thinks Cormac's quite the handsome man, apart from his curly hair. Well, of course, but her friend disagrees uh, and mm-hmm. calls Cormac a dark, ugly, black-eyed thing. <laughs> but for Stengard and Cormac, it's love at first sight. And mm-hmm. Cormac begins a, st- a courtship of Stangard, despite his mother's disapproval. Now, what's the objection? She's got a comely instep. What more can a mother-in-law <laughs> ask for? Um, she thinks that the difference in social status is too great. Uh, uh, Cormac's from a successful and well-connected family, and Stangard's father, Thorkel, is proud but poor. Hmm. This is kind of an undercurrent throughout the saga, mm-hmm. and it's one of the ways in which Cormac's saga differs from the other warrior poet sagas. There are even some scholars who think that Cormac's failure to marry Stangard actually comes down to his unwillingness to marry into a family that's beneath him socially. Yeah. But it has to be said that Thorkel's a little more than just proud. He's also seriously overprotective. Well, I mean, he goes a little bit overboard in trying to discourage Cormac's attentions to his daughter. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. That's not entirely his fault, though. Thorkel's got a friend named Narfi who's whispering in his ear. Narfi. I Narfi. hate that dude. Well, I think you're supposed to. You see, Narfi's this lazy fool of a man who's probably got an eye on Steingart himself, but he has no hope to get her. And he often tries to dissuade Cormac from interacting with her. Oh, God, this is priceless. Um, Okay, so here's here's Narfi's big plan for scaring Cormac Mm -hmm. off. He waits until Cormac stops by to see Steingart, then sticks a sausage from a boiling pot under Cormac's nose and says, As for the snakes of the cauldron, Cormac, what do you reckon? What? That's your Narfi voice? He doesn't deserve any better than that. He's trying to scare Cormac off with a hot dog. I don't think he's trying to scare him off, do you? I mean, 
Yes. I, I always thought that the sausages are a, a reference to, um, Cormac's nether region and his desire for, for, uh, for Stangard. So then the fact that they're boiled and floppy suggests that Cormac is not going to be able to function as a man or what? I don't really know. I'm just going for the, the, the simple phallic reference. I thought it was a, a, a dirty jest. Sometimes a suet sausage is just a suet sausage, Andy. <laughs> Well, of course, Cormac's response to this insult is to smack Narfi with the back of his axe <laughs> and to call him a filthy-haired, manure-smeared, coal-biting dog. Honestly, you have to wonder what Narfi thought was going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe he was hoping that Cormac was afraid of phallic meat or something. Nudge, nudge, say no more. I don't know. <laughs> um, I actually want to start keeping track of Narfi's incompetent schemes, so that's one. Just one. Uh, apparently, Thorkel isn't done listening to Narfi, though. Since their next plan involves hiding Stangird, while Narfi mm. and the two sons of a local witch named Thorveig lie in wait for Cormac. It's good to have another witch in the saga. Sure. This is, uh, this one doesn't work out any better, and in fact, it's actually kind of worse. Cormac breaks into the building where Stangird is, um, and he spends the day with her. Quite nice. Mm. And as he's heading home in the evening, Cormac is ambushed by Thorveig's sons and Narfi, and he kills both the witch's sons. And Narfi? No, 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 no. Narfi yeah. dances around the edges of the battle and escapes unharmed, of course. Uh, and just for the record, that's two idiotic schemes for Narfi already. Yeah, he's kind of a clown. Yeah. Uh, not, but not the Shakespearean clown that has something witty or, or. Right. Not, or, not or, be or in so- any way clever clown. No, he has nothing to teach us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are, <laughs> we should pay attention to some consequences here. Right. Thorveig the Witch is understandably a little bit angry mm-hmm. about Cormac killing her two sons. And so she curses Cormac, saying that he will never enjoy Stangard's love. Right. And at first, Cormac ignores her. Uh, later, he makes a formal appeal to Thorkel for Stangard's hand in marriage, and everything seems to be fine. Uh, but one little problem after another crops up, and Cormac's interest in the marriage fades. Mm-hmm. And we're told this was because Thorvig worked a spell to ruin their happiness. When the time comes for the wedding, Cormac doesn't even show up. And Stangard's family begins a legal proceeding against Cormac for dishonoring her. And it's got to be said, Cormac's behavior here is pretty awful. He stands it, her up. It's true. It's true. I mean, Thorvig's spell stops him from enjoying Stangard's love, but it doesn't say anything about being a jerk and leaving her at the altar. Yeah. Well, Stangard's not going to have to wait long for another suitor because, well, Narfi's got a plan. Uh, here comes idiotic plan number three. No, this one might work better. You'd, you'd really think that at some point everyone else would just start chucking rocks at Narfi whenever he opens his sausage hole. <laughs> well, this plan isn't quite as stupid as the others. He suggests <laughs> a well-respected local widower named Bercy the Dueler. Hmm. Bercy has a young son from his first marriage, and he's quite open to remarrying. So how does Narfi screw this one up? Well, he does tell Bercy that Cormac's out of the picture. Okay, sure, but that's actually true, or at least it seems likely. Uh, well, how about the fact that Steingard doesn't want any part of Bercy and no one thinks to ask her about it? Ah, that's more like it. Yeah. And then Steingard sends Narfi to tell Cormac about the wedding, but Bercy's kinsman Vigi the shapeshifter keeps getting in Narfi's way, so he can't get word to Cormac until after the wedding's over. So, do we think she's trying to get Narfi killed for his partner arranging her marriage to Bercy? Why? Why do you say well, that? Well, okay, because the last time Cormac saw Narfi... They were trying to kill each other. Or at mm-hmm. least Cormac was trying to kill Narfi, and Narfi was trying not to get killed by Cormac. 
Well, Narfi is a little nervous about having to visit Cormac, and probably with good reason. Yes. When he does tell Cormac about the wedding, Cormac smashes Narfi's shield so hard that Narfi's knocked out cold, which seems reasonable. Mm Mm-hmm. And Cormac's brother Thorgils has to wake Narfi up so they can get the details out of him. Well, and when he learns what's gone on, Cormac is so angry about the wedding that he rushes off on horseback without even taking time to kill Narfi properly. Would it really have been appropriate for him to kill Steingard's messenger? Yes. In Narfi's case, yes, it it would. It it seems like Narfi's helping him out here. (laughs) But no time for that. Thorgils grabs 17 men and charges off after Cormac. They all arrive at the coastal farm of Thorvik the Witch, where they see Bersi sailing away. They can't catch him by sea since Thorvig rents them a leaky boat. Now, would you rent a boat from the woman whose sons you killed and who has cast a spell on you so that you cannot enjoy the love? It seems like a questionable <laughs> idea. Uh, so, of course, because the boat leaks, they're forced to travel overland. And by the time they arrive at Bersi's farm, Bersi's had time to call a large force to support him. And so Cormac cannot attack. Instead, he demands compensation for the loss of his fiancée. Mm-hmm. Bersi's friend Thord Arndisserson suggests offering terms, but insists that Steingard is under Bersi's control and authority now. And so Bersi agrees, offers his sister Helga to Cormac as a wife in Steingard's place, and with his brother Thorgils urging him to take the deal, Cormac hesitates for a long moment. Uh, take the no. deal! Take the uh, deal, Cormac! <laughs> Obviously, Bersi's chauvinist attitude is part of the problem, but it's important to note that Cormac's no better. He's treating this almost as a theft of his property. Mm-hmm. But that hesitation is interesting. The saga writer really heightens the suspense here, and the possibility of a simple resolution to the conflict is tantalizingly close. Yeah, but that's not how sagas work, now is it? No, of course not. Uh, there's a woman named Thordis the Prophetess present, and she sure shouts is. out from the crowd that Helga is a harlot and a fool. Boo! Boo! That's the ancient booer. Um, <laughs> Bersi's followers try to shout her down, but Cormac considers her intervention a sign, and so instead of accepting the marriage, he challenges Bersi to a duel in two weeks' time. Bersi accepts, and the two groups part. Everyone knows that Cormac's in trouble. I mean, you really shouldn't go around starting fights with guys named the dueler. Right. <laughs> Bar- <Bersi's laughs> Always also, good advice. Yeah. Bersi's also got a preternaturally sharp sword called Hriting, and mm. he's also got a healing stone that goes with it. In other words, it's just not a smart choice for an enemy. Well, yeah, and, and once he cools down, even Cormac is a little worried. So mm-hmm. he goes and gets advice from his mom, Dala. <laughs> Running what? to his mommy? Oh. This isn't exactly warriorly <laughs> behavior. Well, mothers in the sagas frequently have knowledgeable advice for their sons. Mm-hmm. Like, go kill that Not guy. Not always good advice. Yeah. But they're a valuable source of information. And in this case, Dala has a brainstorm. She sends Cormac to her friend, Skeggy of Midfjord, to ask him for the loan of a legendary sword called Skofnon. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, can I dig- digress for a moment here? Since when do you ever ask about digressing? Shh. Uh, now, we've mentioned on the podcast before that some of these weapons have their own history. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the great ones. Yeah, it is. The story of how Skeggy got his sword is briefly told in La Nama book. Skeggy was a brave man and a traveler who fought in Russia. When he returned from the east... He went to Saland in Denmark, where he broke into the burial mound of Hrolf Kraki and stole oh, wow. Skofnung, King Hrolf's sword, as well as Hjalti's axe and many other treasures. But he did not find Laufi, the sword of Bothvar Bjarki. Wow, that is really cool. <laughs> now, seriously, I, I'm not familiar with that story, so that's yeah. that's really interesting to me. Um, 
I do know, however, and uh, this will help clear things up for some of our listeners. Hrolf has his own saga. It's called mm-hmm. Hrolf Saga Kraka. And it's a rough analog to Beowulf's story. Mm-hmm. And Hrolf himself has a number of great victories. And his sword is a big part of that legend. So mm-hmm. Skeggy just went ahead and stole it. Yeah, yeah. So Skeggy just grave robbed Hrolf Kraki to get his sword. And he's not excited about letting Cormac use it. It's a very special but, sword. I can understand that. Well, absolutely. Uh, but he does eventually give in. Oh, sure. But it's not that easy. There are certain rules to using a sword as magical and wonderful as Skofnum. Mm-hmm. Now, we'll let Skeggy himself explain. He says, should he have a silly voice? He should have a old... voice. That's to be silly. Well, okay. But he, Skeggy's he, he, a respectable man. Let's imagine who he is. What is this guy? Is he old? He's a he's a, an established landowner. I believe he might be a Gothi. Okay. All right. He says, a pouch goes with this sword, but you are to leave it alone. <laughs> the sun is not to shine on the pummel of the sword hilt, and you are not to wield the sword unless you're getting ready for combat. But if you do find yourself on the battlefield, sit by yourself and draw it there. Hold out the sword in front of you and blow on it. Then a little snake will crawl out <laughs> from under the hilt. Turn the sword sideways and make it possible for him to crawl back under the hilt. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, <laughs> first of all, I, I have so much to say about your choice of voice for Skeggy. Uh, <laughs> but I think Cormac's response sums it up. What will you sorcerers think of next? <laughs> is that is that a notable witticism right there? <laughs> it's a pretty good line. Yeah. A little snake will crawl out from under the hilt. <laughs> <laughs> really? I can't get over that. It's, it's pretty ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and but Cormac honestly, the in same the way. end, none of it matters very much because Cormac's no. the sort of person who doesn't read the manual. No, he can't so, be bothered. Right. So as soon as he gets home, he tears the pouch off the sword <laughs> and tries to pull Skofnung from its scabbard. Dummy. The The sword is so outraged by his disrespect. Wait a minute. Begins... Wait a minute. You're saying the sword is outraged? Yeah. Uh, the sword has a mind of its own. Yeah. Yeah. Of course it does. <laughs> yeah. And that mind is seriously annoyed with Cormac. Understandable. Which is not really how you want to start a relationship with a magic sword. Definitely. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that Cormac has a problem with authority figures in general. Can sure. I, yeah. is, is this a phallic thing? You have a penis and then the bag hanging off and you rip the bag off? You rip the bag off. And also, um, you know, when you blow on the sword, a snake comes out. And that's how the sword gets its power. It's... Um, I mean, there's a lot going on there. Yeah, I don't know what to do with it. Let's get back to the yeah <laughs> conversation here. <laughs> Yikes! Uh, so okay, so it's my line. Uh, yeah, he, uh, Cormac continues abusing Skofnung even on the day of the duel, so that the sword is actually screaming <laughs> in fury at him before the duel even starts. He's very angry at his penis. <laughs> what? <laughs> this is getting seriously weird. But I guess this is the moment when we get the dueling rules laid out for us. And mm-hmm. if you've already listened to our saga brief on dueling, you'll have heard this long and detailed explanation of the rules for the home gong or formal dueling. Now, I have to say, we treated this scene fairly seriously in that episode. Yes, we did. It it sort of changes my understanding of it that one of the participants' sword is shouting curses at him the whole time. <laughs> No kidding. <laughs> well, they don't draw attention to that during the, no. the, the description, though. But briefly, Cormac and Bersi, they have to stand on a cloak together and take turns striking. And mm-hmm. their seconds hold shields for them, with each side allowed three shields. 
the first to be disarmed or to shed blood is the loser. Right. Now, in this case, Cormac's brother Thorgils will be his second, while Thord Arndisserson is going to be the second for Bercy. Right. Thord is the same guy who tried to arrange a settlement earlier, but I right. don't remember he, that myself, so if you don't, that's okay. Uh, right. And he's also a sort of defensive specialist when it comes to duels. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bercy later calls him the god of the shield in a verse. That's pretty cool. He's a very useful guy to have on your side in a duel. Uh, interesting footnote. Our more obsessive listeners may remember way back in Gisli's saga that two of Bork the Stout's nephews, Thorod and Outlawstein, were among the men who hunted Gisli down and who were eventually killed by Gisli. Mm-hmm. This guy, Thord, is their father. He's married to Bork's sister, Thordis. Wow. Very good job, John. That's, <laughs> that's kind of obscure connecting there. Well, I, I do love a spot of family tree trivia. Mm, me too. Let's get on with the actual duel, okay? Okay. All right. It's actually pretty straightforward. Both combatants destroy each other's large shields, and on Cormac's next swing, the two swords clash. Skofnung is badly nicked by an iron targe, which Thorveig the Witch had given to Bercy. But the tip of Bercy's sword, Feeting, is sheared off and cuts Cormac's thumb open. His bleeding thumb stops the fight, and Bercy claims victory. Uh, these duels always end on a technicality. Not always, but this is first blood, right? Duel mm-hmm. ends on first blood, so there you go. They clearly don't resolve the problem in a satisfying way, though. They really wanted to cut a leg off or kill the person. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's it. Cormac has to pay a fine and back off. Yeah. Well, I guess sort of. He promises to pay the fine, but then he stops by his uncle Stainer's house and tells him to pay Bercy. Meanwhile, Cormac says that he's going to leave Iceland. Just for a while. Stainer sneers at Cormac a bit, but he says that he'll pay the fine... If it has to be paid. Mm-hmm. Incidentally, this is the same Steinar Ononderson who was reported elsewhere in the sagas as having a fairly significant feud with your thing man Thorstein Ailson. Uh, meanwhile, Cormac's thumb gets infected and swells up, and he refuses offers to heal it until he gets home to his mommy. Such a stubborn guy. I know. He also returns the sword Skolfnung to Skeggy of Midfjord and blames the sword for his failure in the duel. <laughs> so funny. So Cormac blames the sword even though he deliberately ignored the rules for using it. Yeah, uh, Cormac's kind of a jerk sometimes. Yeah, But Most we're of the going time, to get really. a bit of a break for him, fortunately, since he's going to pout at home for a while. Yeah. This is a weird bit. The saga yeah. action now switches and follows Bercy for a while. And the story goes through a series of feuds and duels in quick succession. Uh, do you want to cover this or should I do this? Well, let's handle them quickly. Uh, All right, if we can. Well, we're, we're known for being brief. <laughs> There's a first for everything. Uh, the next duel is between Bercy and Cormac's uncle Steinar, who offers a double or nothing duel for the fine Bercy's due from Cormac. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one has a whole subplot in which Bercy's friend Thord Ardisson argues with Bercy after their sons have a disagreement. Thord and Steinar team up to steal Bercy's healing stone necklace before the duel, and obviously Thor is not acting as shield man for Bercy this time. Uh, Bercy loses the duel when Stainar's sword slices through the muscle of his buttock and thigh down Uh-oh. to the knee. So it's, a, it's a brutal injury. Uh, Stainar is wounded as well, but both men survive the duel. Thord later returns Bercy's healing stone and helps him recover, and the two are reconciled. That's sweet. Yeah. Meanwhile, Stainar gives his sword from the fight to Cormac as a souvenir. Now, the main fallout from the duel is that Stengard uses Bercy's defeat and injury as a pretext for divorcing him. I mean, mm-hmm. she really kicks this guy when he's down. I mean, yeah. imagine him suffering from this massive wound on his <laughs> oh leg God. and buttock, and uh, 
as she's leaving, she says to him, You were known as Bleary Eye Bercy, and as Bercy the Dueler, but now you may in truth be called Arse Bercy. <laughs> that's yeah. a great list of nicknames, but man, that's harsh. What did he do to deserve that? No, that's a great question. Jenny Jawkins argues that Stangard sees Bercy's injury as a humiliation to her, maybe because of the sexual connotations of an injury to the buttocks. Hmm. Mm. Maybe, but I think you were closer to the truth when you called it a pretext. Stangard hasn't been happy about this marriage from the beginning. This is just giving no. her an excuse to get rid of him. Yeah, well, whichever it is, I guess. Stangard instigates the next duel by asking her brother Thorkel Toothnasher, nicknames, to recover yeah. <laughs> her bride price and dowry from Bercy. Now, when Bercy refuses, Thorkel challenges him to a duel. Duel, duel, duel. So many duels in this book. I know, really. It's really hilarious. Yeah, if you're into duels, this is your saga. Yeah, it's one duel after another. Thord once again serves as a shield bearer for Bercy, and Bercy kills Thorkel in the duel. Thorkel's shield bearer, Vali, then challenges Bercy to yet another duel. But mm-hmm. Thord intervenes and arranges a settlement whereby Bercy marries Vali's sister, Thordis. Everyone following this? <laughs> uh, just just trust us on this. Oh, the end out. result is that Bercy gets remarried to his enemy's sister. Yeah, if you want rewind, get out your pen and pencil, and uh, right. I guess get out your pen and paper and map this out for yourself. Right. Uh, and we have to say, it is a nice bit of feud resolution by Thord. Mm-hmm. It helps to clear away any suggestion that Steingard uh, divorcing Bercy had anything to do with sexual dysfunction resulting from his injuries. Yeah. This is a great soap opera, isn't it? It is. We've got a million different characters all kind of going back and forth. All you, lots all you need is the sort of bad organ music in the background after yeah. each moment. It's great drama. Yeah. Well, anyways, this also leads to a few years of peace and there's some quiet in the area, which is honestly much needed after all these feuds. But of course, it's not going to last for all that long. No, no. Why would it? Otherwise, it wouldn't be interested. I mean, imagine it's just right. them farming. <laughs> Although that could make for a hell of a story. Stangard woke up early that morning to milk the cows. To, to cast the corn out on the fields. <laughs> uh, the next trouble occurs after a debate between Odd of Tungu and a fisherman named Glum over the relative merits of Bercy and a local bully named Thorarin the Mighty. Yeah. Is this our old friend Odd from Henthor's saga? Uh, yes, indeed. Is he my uh, thing, man? Um... I feel like Maybe? he is, but I don't remember. <laughs> That's not good. That's not good. Don't don't ask that question if you don't know the answer. <laughs> I think Tungu Odd is one of my thing men. Oh dear, he's oh, quite dear. powerful. You know what? I'm going to count that as a victory for me that you don't even remember who your <laughs> thing man is from that saga. Well, uh, I'll just have to check the uh, the records. Nice. I know exactly who my thing man is from that saga. Thor Yeller. <laughs> uh, yeah, he gets shot behind the shed. I'll remind <laughs> you. <laughs> anyway. Gloom likes Thorarin's swagger, but Odd counters by saying that for him, there's no comparison between Bercy's heroism and Thorarin's thievery. Ooh, them's fighting words. Yep, uh, especially after Gloom tells Thorarin about what Odd said. Thorarin retaliates by kidnapping Odd's daughter Steinvor, and Odd asks Bercy to help him get his daughter back. Uh, Bercy's solution to the problem is to ride alone to Thorarin's farm, where he finds Stainvar and says, You get ready to leave with me. That's how he said it? Yes. He <laughs> uh, he then proceeds to go full Rambo on the household, <laughs> killing Thorarin and then ambushing Thorarin's three sons with spears in the woods near the house. That's full Rambo? I think so. I've never actually seen Rambo. Yeah, obviously not. 
<laughs> anyway, um, he then takes Stanvar home with him, and she settles into his ho- household in a kind of ambiguous relationship that Beresi's wife, Thor, just doesn't like at all. Uh, she retaliates by stealing money from Beresi and allowing her brother, Vali, to farm some of her dowry land. Uh, right. Which so, is not a euphemism in any way, I want to be clear. Right. So that leads to a final Bercy episode. We'll finally move back to Cormac eventually, won't we? Right. We have the now elderly Bercy, his preteen foster son, Haldar Olafsson, and the lovely Steinvor secretly plotting to get Vali alone near a cliff. They attack and kill him. And according to Bercy himself, Vali is the 36th man that Bercy has killed in his lifetime. Congratulations. I think confetti probably fell from the heavens. <laughs> but even the most blood-drenched man eventually has to hang up his sword, and Bercy is now officially retired and out of this saga. Do I do I detect in you a bit of Bercy fandom? Mm. Are we looking at your thing, man, for the saga? Let's just say if I lose the coin toss, yes. <laughs> <laughs> He's definitely an impressive guy, though mm-hmm. I think the Ars Bercy nickname is, uh, you know, maybe a little well, knock against it. But that's sure. just a hostile woman. Right, right. Uh, speaking of the nickname, the saga now rewinds in time back to Stangard at the moment when she leaves Bercy and sends her brother Toothnasher on his fatal trip to try to recover her bridal goods. Mm-hmm. Nice segue. Thank you. Uh, two bridal brothers. goods. It sounds dirty. Bridal goods. Uh, I thought farming her dowry land sounded dirty, but you <laughs> that's right even that. better. Yeah, it didn't, uh, well, it just didn't occur to me. I'm not so uh, filthy as you. Uh, okay, now two brothers named Thorvard Astinson and Thorvald Tintain now enter the saga at the point when Tintain asks for Stangard's hand in marriage. Tintain. So, <laughs> <laughs> for people who aren't reading along, let's be clear that this is T I N. T-E-I-N, mm-hmm. not Tintin, like the kid in the Belgian comics. Right. It, it, now, in Thorvald's case, Tintin means something like tin block or tin stick, right? I'm sure you'll explain it in, in yeah, uh, nicknames. Um, yeah, it'll be in the nickname section, obviously. He's uh, he's apparently some kind of blacksmith. Uh, anyway, Stangard's family agrees to the match, and she's okay with it, too. Uh, she actually seems to be on board with this marriage. Finally. When Cormac stops by before he leaves to travel abroad... She tells him off and threatens to sick Tintain on him. I have a hard time taking Thorvald seriously when you keep calling him Tintain. But I think that's part of the... Sorry, I'm going to keep doing it, though. Yeah, I think it's the the saga author's point, though. Tintain, the blacksmith, he's kind of a Mm. dirty, swarthy... He's he's really not a great match. It's supposed to make Cormac look bad. At least Cormac takes it that way. Anyway, Cormac and his brother Thorgil set sail. And, you know, it's finally, they're getting out of here. In the other sagas that we've, we've done... They, yep. these guys get out of town fairly quickly. We've been kind of lingering around in Iceland and Cormac hasn't even been, been there. Well, there's this very strange thing in this saga where really for, you know, almost a quarter of its length, it follows Bercy rather than Cormac. And so now we're kind of rewinding yeah. back to that early point in Cormac's life. Right. Uh, even though we're well advanced in the saga. Yeah. Now, this is one of my favorite moments in the saga, actually. Mm-hmm. While they're sailing, they almost immediately, as they get off the shore, spot a walrus beside the ship. Of course they do. Yeah. Cormac suspects something's up here, and he fires a harpoon at it, <laughs> mortally wounding the poor walrus. Best bloodshed. Right, but <laughs> but this isn't just random animal cruelty, right? No, no. The walrus seems to be a fetch of Cormac's old enemy, Thorveig the Witch. 
Mm. Now, Fetch is a kind of spirit form that witches occasionally take on in the sagas. Uh, and since Th- since Cormac kills the walrus, Thorvag falls ill and dies. So it's not random at all. It's very specific animal cruelty. I guess you want to, if you want to take it that way, sure. Yes. Anyway, the brothers make it to Norway, where they spend some time with King Haakon's troop, and they form a raiding partnership with a German named Sigurd. And when Haakon dies, they continue in service to his successor, Harold Greycloak, and they accompany him in a campaign in Ireland where they gain some fame for themselves in combat. Now, I should say, if it sounds a little bit rushed, that's because it is in the saga as well. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're not actually blasting through no. page to page of the saga here. It really is this kind of quick. Yeah, this, this saga is less interested in the poet as a, mm-hmm. uh, a king's poet. And uh, much more interested in what's happening in Iceland, which, you know, Absolutely right. is quite different from what we've been reading. But anyway, mm-hmm. through, throughout all of this, Cormac can't get his mind off of Steingerd, and he composes a number of verses about her. The surf roars. Steep cliffs rise from the edge of the sea king's blue realm. To the water's domain glides the din of the sea that encircles islands. Much more sleepless than you, I am made by the wave gleams Valkyrie. Yet if, having slept, I awaken, it's the bead-decked goddess I'll miss. Now that was relaxing. Well, since Cormac can't quite shake his love longing, these strong feelings he has for Steingerd, he and his brother eventually set sail back to Iceland. Now, I think we've mentioned before that composing verses about another man's wife is a serious offense in Icelandic law. Absolutely. And I don't think anyone else in all saga literature violates that law as frequently as Cormac does. Probably not. There are a couple dozen verses about Steingerd in the saga, and there's really worse coming. Yeah, I think we're about to hear the worst of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Cormac returns to Iceland, he finds Stangard out riding. He he manages to lose their horses, and so they have to seek shelter at a small farm nearby. How convenient. Now, is yeah. losing horses the saga equivalent of running out of gas near Makeout Point in the 50s? I, I think Cormac hopes it is, <laughs> uh, but it doesn't quite work out that I, way. I just love the uh, subtlety of that idea. Oh. Our, our, oh, I, I lost our, the horses. The horses seem to have... <laughs> Oh my goodness! Oh, are you cold? Are you- as he's sort of sl- as he's sort of slapping away at them as they ride off. Yeah, go, uh, go. Right, but of course, it's actually going to end up being a very awkward situation. Um, Stangard isn't all that pleased to see him, mm-hmm. and when they find a place to stay, they bed down on opposite sides of a wooden screen. Yeah. Cormac then attempts to thaw her with several verses, one of which is particularly raunchy. Uh, <laughs> would you care to do the honors? I don't mind if I do. I figured you wouldn't. Yeah. He says, uh, now, ladies, prepare yourselves. <laughs> Goddess of arms fires, we repose on either side of a screen. The mighty fates have their way and are hostile. I see it clearly. And yet, whenever we share a bed, we have not a care in the world. So dear are you. Sea goddess, to the sword of the Love Hare's Island. 
it's kind of creepy. Now, I, well, I think your uh, your brandy snifter voice <laughs> that you gave that didn't help. Uh, I think it's it's now, quite appropriate for what he's up to. I I, re- <laughs> I realize that poetic verses can be a little obscure sometimes, but I'm assuming that the sword of the Love Hairs Island doesn't need to be explained to anyone. Yeah, let's at least try to preserve it. The littlest pretense of being family friendly. <laughs> My children listen to this sometimes, right? For some reason, uh, it has to be noted though that this is this is really shocking stuff, especially when it's said about and to a married woman. Yeah. And honestly, Steingard's not even remotely pleased with this verse. She says mm-hmm. at that moment, "It would be better if their paths never crossed again." And honestly, yeah. I have to say, for a guy who's been pining for Steingard for a few years, Cormac does a terrible job of trying to win her back. It's really true, and he can't even blame the witch's curse for this Mm -hmm. one. The curse only causes him to screw up after he's got Stangard's love. This is just his own crudeness and lack of style. Yeah. So in the morning, Cormac tries again. This time he offers Stangard a gold ring, but she tells him, May the trolls take every bit of you and your ring. That's a good good line, badly (laughs) delivered, but a good line. You... You'd think Cormac would take the hint at this point. Well, he does, kind of, sort of, anyway. We're told that he's now upset with Stangard, and he begins to plot against her new husband. So if you can't win the woman, you just beat up her husband. Right, right. But, of course, he goes home for the winter first. Presumably to visit his mom again. <laughs> Not that that's a bad yeah, it's, thing. It's, no, it's worth noting that Cormac may be the biggest mama's boy ever to get a saga named after him. <laughs> um, but at this point... He's so worked up about things that a short visit for cookies and milk is about all he can manage. It's true. Cormac can't quit Stangard. Ugh. Mm. <sighs> You're right there. That's so lame. He rides to her new home in Svinadal during the winter, and he finds her at home with her husband, Tintain, and our old friend, <laughs> Narfi. Narfi. <laughs> oh, God. Here we go again. Love this guy. Why has anyone killed him yet? Well, sure enough, Narfi starts egging Tintane on, but nothing comes of it. Tintane says he sees nothing wrong with Cormac's visit. I'm I'm counting this as Narfi's fourth stupid attempt to start trouble, by the way, mm-hmm. since he's doing it with Cormac in the room. Mm. But of course, Narfi's not going to let it lie there. Why would he? He gets Tintane's brother Thorvard on his side, and the three of them hire a vagabond to recite insulting poetry about Stangard and claim that Cormac composed the verses. Yeah. I would have wished Stangard, that mighty goddess, as an old and proud mare for mating, and myself a stud stallion. Then I'd have left on the back of that Valkyrie of Threads whose fiery holes wall halts the battle erect spears. Oh my God. Steingard is infuriated by the verses. But, I mean, as I'm reading it, I have to say that's not any worse than Sword of the Love Hairs Mount that Cormac actually <laughs> did compose. Right. I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. Uh, I would say Cormac's enemies kind of underestimate just how crude he is. Right. And, in fact, I would suggest that Cormac's chief cause for anger is that the fake verse isn't actually good enough poetry to be one of his. Right, right. 
It actually lacks the complexity of illusion and the depth of reference of his usual work. It's true. For one thing, naming Stangard outright in the poem misses an opportunity for an unnecessarily convoluted description of, of some <laughs> goddess of the sea nymph thing or other. Right. I mean, it's right. pretty amateur, actually. I'm assuming Narfi wrote it. Definitely Narfi wrote uh, this. <laughs> it's so this, dirty. This, by the way, is the... I mean, he's the subtle sausage guy, boy. right? What do you think of this sausage right. here? Right. And this is his fifth stupid plan. Uh, but this time, there's good news for everyone who's as sick of Narfi as I am. Mm-hmm. Cormac's finally angry enough to do something about him. Yay. Yeah, Cormac tracks down the vagabond, learns who's behind the fake poem, and then immediately rushes to Narfi and kills him. Hallelujah! It's about time. You feel better now? Yes. If you dare so, try to outlaw Narfi, so I'm much be mad. better. Oh, I'm, I'm outlawing this guy. Narfi's the not going anywhere. He's so funny. When I was reading this saga, I was really worried that Narfi was going to get away without being killed. <laughs> well, enjoy your moment. Oh, I am. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, Cormac's still on the warpath. Uh, Tintane has to flee and narrowly avoids being killed as well. His brother Thorvard then challenges Cormac to a duel. But when Cormac shows up for the duel, neither of the brothers shows up. Cormac issues his own duel challenge against Thorvard, but composes an insulting verse about him at the same time. So, instead of fighting him, the brothers sue him for slander. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, Thorvard agrees to duel with Cormac. Yay, more dueling! Uh-huh. <laughs> but Cormac's mother warns him. She's still around. She's always around. She warns him that Thorvard will certainly be using magic, and there's this mommy issue. She tells him to go to talk to Thordis the prophetess. Now, this is the same Thordis who called Bersi's sister a harlot, right? Oh, yeah. She's not a nice lady at all. No. That's why she's a prophetess. Right. She gets involved with some complicated magics to try to help both Cormac and Thorvard, since they're both paying her. At least she's an equal opportunity prophetess. Right. But the result is that neither man can be cut by each other's swords. Now, there's something worth investigating there more generally about which is magic making men's swords impotent. Hmm. Maybe. There's a lot of hmm. sword penis stuff going on in this yeah. saga. Yeah. Uh, but we shouldn't talk about that. Anyway, Cormac <laughs> solves the pro- <laughs> I guess we just did, didn't we? Cormac solves this problem by hitting Thorvard so hard that it breaks his ribs. He's not technically cut, but he can't continue to fight. Cormac wins, but he's still got a knack for saying and doing things that annoy Stangard. This time, he wipes his sweaty brow on a flap of her clothing. Seriously, he doesn't know that's going to cheese her right. off. He thinks he's so slick. Hey, baby. <laughs> I mean, whatever. I honestly think there's something wrong with this guy. Or else, I mean, at this point, he's more interested in getting a rise out of her than in winning her affection. Uh, that that actually might well be the case. Yeah. He Because he then manages to trade a slaughtered bull to Thorvard in exchange for a ring of Stangards, which he correctly predicts will make her even angrier. Hmm. Then, when Thorvard's ribs have healed, they duel again. Thordis's magic is still working against Cormac, but this time he breaks Thorvard's shoulder blade and wins a second gold ring as a result. Poor guy. I know. After that, things quiet down for the winter. But now in the spring, Cormac and his brother plan another voyage. But of course, Cormac can't resist a last trip to Stangard before leaving, and he kisses her twice while he's there. Mm-hmm. Tintane gets angry. Well, yes, you can see why he would get angry. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Uh, neutral parties intervene. But Cormac is judged to be in the wrong and has to give Tintane the two gold rings that he's gotten from Thorvard. Mm-hmm. 
And of course, since he's Cormac, he speaks a verse for the occasion, and this is actually one of his most famous poems. I had to pay with a ring both times I embraced the bright brooch bear with my brown arms. You people paid money before. Two costlier kisses never came the way of the gold-leaf tree of the sword. Indeed, I am cheated of cheerful encounters. So we're done here, right? Cormac and his brother leave Iceland and that's it. No, of course not. We we always do that routine. We're done here, right? But we're never done here. <laughs> Steingard... It always, it always feels like these things should end just a little bit earlier than they do. Well, you know, you always got to wrap it up with some kind of like a uh, little bit of nothing, really. They, right. My students often complain about that when I'm teaching. They're like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I liked it up until the end. And then well, it kind of... you know, I won't spoil it, but... Those of you who haven't read the saga, we're heading for the most bizarre non-sequitur ending in all the sagas. <laughs> well, let's get to it. Mm-hmm. Stangard and Tintain now travel abroad as well, but they are attacked by Vikings who attempt to kidnap Stangard. Cormac and Thorgils hear about this, and they set sail to their rescue. But then Cormac kisses Stangard four times, and he gets in trouble again. <laughs> this is actually a strange part of the saga. The story almost starts looping on itself yeah. here. Uh, the price for the kisses turns out to be two ounces of gold, and Cormac recites the same verse again while handing it over. Meanwhile, the Viking attack is going to be repeated in a few pages with similar results. So, what's going on here? I don't know. There may be a manuscript problem going on here. Mm. I mean, from a narrative perspective, this part of the saga gets a little choppy due to staggered repetitions. So, I guess we can try to make it as simple as possible. But one thing mm-hmm. to to say here might be, that there's got to be some kind of continental romance narrative influences here, and they're not fully fleshed yes. out just yet. But it does almost feel like the text got folded on itself somehow. Um, that, that suggests, though, that this is an unfinished product, mm-hmm. and I don't think that this is an unfinished product. It's probably finished. Mm-hmm. It's just not as fully developed as what you'd see in the continental narratives. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we should we should try to simplify things a little bit for our listeners uh, and enough. cover one incident in particular. Um, oh, the bumper boats incident. Bumper boats incident? Yes. Okay. What would you call it? Uh, let's, let's see. I guess that would work. Between the two Viking attacks, both Cormac and Tintain end up traveling with Harold Greycloak. And while they're sailing alongside one another, Cormac randomly reaches over to Tintain's ship and whacks him upside the head with a ship tiller. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just great. Tintain is stunned and falls over, but Stangard who's on the ship, grabs the rudder and swerves their ship so that it rams into into Cormac's ship. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. You've got to respect Stangard. She's got a lot more spirit than the other love interests we've seen in these warrior Yeah, that's on. absolutely true. She'd probably mop the floor with Helga the Fair and Colfina single-handedly. Um, and, of course, because Cormac already used his ship's tiller to hit Tintane, <laughs> right. he can't recover. That's so funny. And so his ship capsizes when Stangard rams it. Uh-huh. He and his men are rescued from the water, but it's pretty embarrassing for him. But Stangard's going to need Cormac's help again very soon, because this is where the mm-hmm. saga inserts yet another Viking raid. Right. Now, the second Viking attack is actually much more interesting. The raiders are led by a Viking named Thorstein, and they successfully kidnap Stangard and try marrying her to one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a little side note here. This Thorstein is the son of Osmond Ashsides, the Viking who once fought against Cormac's father, Ogmund. Is that really important? Well, yeah. I mean, it's one of those story elements that show how carefully constructed this saga is. That's right. Even in spite of the confusion about the repleted plot points. 
Cormac here faces off against the son of his father's old rival. Oh, that's actually pretty cool. times with a love interest hanging in the mm-hmm. balance. I think we're looking at a somewhat degraded saga, possibly one that has suffered from a transmission error at some point in its development. Okay. But a good one. Yeah, that's absolutely true. That's very, I, I, you know, I never noticed that. Love it. Love it, John. Well done. Mm-hmm. Now, the outcome is, of course, slightly different. Instead of a duel like the one Ogman and Ashsides fought, we have a nighttime raid. Cormac and Thorgil sneak onto the ship when most of the Vikings are on the land. They kill the would-be bridegroom, rescue Steingard, and return her to her husband, Tintane. Okay, now that last part is a little different than last time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got to be a little emasculating for Tintane that Cormac was the one to rescue his wife. Yeah, and he knows it. Actually, I mean, mm-hmm. Tintane essentially admits that Cormac's the better man, and he says that Steingard should go off with him, since Cormac was the one to rescue her and clearly loves her a whole lot more. Cormac seems to like the idea, but Steingard... Mm-hmm for obvious reasons, is sick of Cormac and says she won't go with him. I mean, think about all the things that he's done to her. He stands her up at their wedding. Mm-hmm. He composes horrible poems about her. He steals oh kisses. God, the filthiest verses in all the songs. Yeah, grabs her all over the place. She's just not mm-hmm. She's not into it. Anyway, so the two groups part, and Cormac and Steingard never see each other again. Sad music. Well, I guess, but... I think that's the happiest ending any of the women in these stories has gotten so far. <laughs> but the point is, it's a sad ending for Cormac. Oh, oh, not yet. Uh, Cormac's story doesn't end quite yet. First, he spends some time raiding with King Harold. The party visits Norway, Ireland, Wales, England, and finally Scotland in a series of raids. In Scotland, Cormac is chasing some fleeing enemies when he's caught off guard by a Scottish giant sure. rushing out of the woods. Yeah. That would be surprising. I suppose so. <laughs> Come here, ye wee Viking bugger. <laughs> <laughs> that is also surprising. Uh, is that your Scottish giant voice? Aye. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> it tastes. Cormac. <laughs> Cormac kills the giant, but suffers fatal internal injuries. Um, he does, however, have time and breath for several verses before he dies. Anger was always my policy, sea goddess. After all, I was famed once for killing, so that the sword would forestall my dying of sickness. In no way can I escape it. Other staves of the battlesnake surely must die in their beds. On my heart weighs heavy the pain of death. Well, it's kind of depressing, but it's a fairly honest self-assessment, really. Uh, yes, but anger was always my policy. is much of an epitaph. <laughs> no. Uh, nevertheless, it, now it's our turn for a little assessment. Yes, and you will have to wait for that assessment until our next episode, which we will be recording very, very shortly, promises this time. <laughs> In the meantime, I don't need to tell you about our website, sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com where we post our episodes, past judgments, and our thoughts on each other's Thingman decisions. The most important thing, though, that I don't need to tell you is that our podcast is available through iTunes and pretty much every other podcasting directory you can think of. Please remember to review our podcast and help spread the word. 
If you don't see us on your favorite directory or you've got something to say, we're on Twitter at SagaThingPod and on Facebook at SagaThingPodcast. And if you're old-fashioned and prefer the 90s way of doing things, just hike up your flannel sleeves and drop us a line at SagaThingPodcast at gmail.com. There are so many ways to get in touch with us, it's simply astounding. (laughs) As always, we appreciate your support. Until next time. Bye for now. Our best work is still ahead of us. (laughs) (laughs) That's our motto.